Hello and welcome to The Two View, the cutting edge educational interactive show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is PA Michael Sharma and I practice emergency medicine urgent care in Dallas, Texas. Usually I'll be introducing my co-host, co-host, sorry, NP Martha Roberts at this time. Um, Martha's been called away for this episode and uh, we can't wait to have her back for the next episode. But in her place, we have the co-director of the original emergency medicine boot camp, the founder of the Center of Magical Education. It is Dr. Rick Bucata. Rick, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, I'm uh, happy to come out of the bullpen with little notice, but I think I can save the game here. I'm not so sure, <laughs> but you know, who knows? I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great. I mean, um, like we were talking about before we recorded, um, you're, you're no stranger to the podcasting world and to the asynchronous medical education world. You you kind of started it off with Dr. Jerry Hoffman. And so it's a real uh, pleasure just to be with one of the uh, the godfathers, so to speak, of, of the art form here. Well, you're very kind. Uh, <laughs> uh, more, uh, more than the, the deserved, but still very kind. Well, I think well-deserved. Well, as you know, we just parted ways in Las Vegas in person. We just come back now from the original Emergency Medicine Boot Camp's July running. It was amazingly, I think, hotter than it is here uh, in Texas currently, but it was a great time to get the band back together and talk about the core emergency medicine content. Rick, how was it for you compared to the you know 20 or 30 one of these, if not more, before this? Oh, well, we've been doing them since uh, for about nine years now, actually, maybe maybe 10. And uh, every year there's a lot of energy. You know, one of the things I think is unique about uh, PAs and PAs coming to school is that you, the, you can see their energy for uh, wanting to learn. Their, their passion, their enthusiasm is, is uh, palpable. And that really makes the courses a lot more fun because you know, they're, they're engaged. I mean, it's like they're almost getting prepared to take an exam because they're writing notes and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're looking and they're listening. And uh, it's kind of like, um, it's pretty intense experience. And I really liked it. I, I enjoy it every time we do it. Uh, and we also have other people there, like we have a good number of physicians who, you know, are in their second specialties. They were uh, retired surgeons working out in rural America uh, the physicians, family physicians who also are in private practice, but they also cover the ER um, in uh, rural America. And we have a goodly number of those as well. So it's a, it's a mixed group. So, and the other thing is mixed about it is their experience. Some are new grads, some yep. have been around for a long time. So it's always kind of a little hard to make the balance between, oh, that's too obvious or, you know, no, no, it's not. So we kind of walk a tight line trying to find what would be the most best and uh, most interesting and uh, high yield content uh, as we can find. I think it's important just to go back to the basics sometimes. Some of those things that we, you know, uh, we, we thought we knew and we thought we knew why we knew them and why we do them. Um, sometimes, you know, it, on retrospect, it, we do these things for the wrong reasons or the, the evidence behind them is not as solid as we thought it was when it was taught to us. You know, we, we are products of the people who taught us and they are the products of the people who taught them. And, and sometimes things sneak in. Um, along the way that they need to be weeded out. It's, it's up to us to kind of be um, always filtering, always reevaluating. I've been looking forward to the camp all year. It, it delivered on all my expectations. And I think everyone there at the camp said the same thing. They love teaching at boot camp, regardless of, of how this may be considered like 
entry-level emergency medicine, the core content, but it's because of the attendees. It's a, it's a great environment where everyone is there to learn, to think through these topics, to ask great questions, and to have a, a lot of fun on the conference floor and also out on the Vegas trip too. Yeah, there's actually no way you cannot leave this course learning a substantial amount of information. Some people will learn more than others, but everybody's going to come away because you're right. Evidence changes over time. And the longer you've been out, the more you, you may be uh, away from the evidence. And we want to hold people's feet to the fire and say, you know, show me that's the answer. Prove it to me, you know. Right. I, we, just because you say we've always done it that way, you know, that's not going to work here. That didn't work in the military when I was a, a soldier. That doesn't work in medicine either. No, I, I, that's the worst reason to do something, in my opinion. Well, uh, we are going to do something a little bit unusual for this episode here. Um, we're going to recycle or bring up a, an old staple of the entertainment industry. It's the clip show. Now, what a clip show is, is when someone recycles content that was previously aired and kind of does a little bit of a riffing on it. But what you're going to be hearing is brand new to you and the listeners of the two of you. These are recordings of talks that Martha and I have given live in Las Vegas. And then Rick and I are going to kind of interject here and there and spend a few minutes um, giving our, our thoughts on the sound bites. You mean, you mean like this is summer reruns? <laughs> I prefer to think of this as uh, as repackaged, uh, repurposed. Uh, it's new to you, kind of a thing, you know. So, so yeah. It. So, if, if you want to call it reruns, you can belittle it, I suppose. But after that, you're going to hear a live Q and A session from our 2021 boot camp. And and you know, I I say that I learn something new every time I go to the boot camp, and it's not always from the material presented, but it's, um, you know, someone puts forth a thought-provoking question, a new wrinkle on a situation that I've seen before. And, and um, having these questions is really great. And it's a real privilege to be able to ask um, questions directly to people like you, Rick, to your co-director, Dan Burbaumer. You have Ken Mill and you have MRAP faculty like Britt Guest and Jesse Warner, Jen Schoenberger, who runs the residency out at LA County, USC, Michael Juch, Chip Lang, um, these are, you know, rock star NPs and PAs who teach and do podcasts um, of, of their own right. And so it's, it's just, a, it's, uh, you know, you, you, sometimes you're, you're listening to a podcast or you're reading something, you go, gosh, I wish I could just ask the person who wrote this a, a question. Well, you can do that at the boot camp. Okay, so time for a, uh, a segment. This yes. Is, I, this is Martha giving her... Uh, bits and pieces <laughs> well she calls it odds and dens but yeah, I, actually i realized bits and pieces is a kind of like if you're in england that's a it's talking a reference to some genital kind of thing <laughs> i thought that was twigs and berries but yeah whatever something like that right bits and fish, pieces, okay fish and chips something yeah. like, so, something and something else okay so yeah so we're going to talk about that right now um the next voice you hear is going to be uh, my co-host martha roberts so as diane would mention um uh, for the vital signs. Did you go back in the room and check the vital signs? How did they look? Did they improve? What is normal? What is abnormal? Do your critical thinking skills, not just when you first see the patient, but when you're also discharging the patient. What might you have overlooked, right? Have a little checklist for yourself. And then what did you find? And you need to communicate that to your patient. Now, what happens if you have incidental findings? And we did briefly discuss this. What I like to do is if someone has an incidental finding, pulmonary nodule, something else that they need to follow up with that may not be an emergency today, they need to have it on a sheet of paper, you give it to them and highlight it. 
Now, an incidental finding saved my life from one of my favorite ER physician friends many years ago. I went to the emergency department. I had a horrible headache. It was the worst headache I've ever had in my whole life. And I got the whole workup of the CT of the, of the head and the neck. And I ended up being fine. It was migraine. It was just really severe. But uh, remember, uh, my physician came in, um, who was my friend, but also does this for every patient. And he said, you know, I found something on your CT. It looks, it looks really normal. Um, to me, but the radiologist really, I think it was an overread, maybe I'm not sure, but he's like, I'm just gonna, you know, go through this with you. And I had a, a, a mass in my neck. So I followed it, I didn't make a big deal about it, but he, I, I wouldn't, I mean, tons of times there's incidental findings that are kind of overreading or hedging by the radiologist, and we don't really think much of them, right? A couple years later, I went back to the doctor and said, you know, hey, I, I really, I got this piece of paper that said, this information, you know, should I, what should I do? I ended up getting more imaging on my neck. Turns out that I, you know, had a big growing tumor in my neck. I had a big Herthel cell tumor. And um, for, for any of you that have seen my big scar, it's a reminder that that ER doctor ultimately saved my life many years down the line. So I'm very grateful to him. So the other things that are really important is setting up appointments for your patients. Now that seems like a real big pain in the ass. But I'll tell you, once you work in a place for a long time and you start seeing that primary care doctor's name on the patient's chart, it's really easy to call the office and say, so-and-so is here. You know, um, I'd like to schedule an appointment for them. It's easier than you think, and there's always a backline for the office. So we just heard Martha talking about her approach when we're about to discharge a patient. And, and, you know, it's really important, I think, to do that last, you know, at least walk by the room before you hit print and walk in with your discharge paperwork to tell them uh, how good they look. Rick, what was your practice back in the day when you were at discharge a patient? Was there any, any sort of checklist that you had? Well, I did something that was kind of weird. I, uh, I discharged the patients by myself. Oh, wow. I, um, yes, that, that was an oh, wow. <laughs> uh, because, you know, oftentimes I would see a person and they were just kind of leaning against the door sill. They're all fully dressed. And, and I, I, I watched one guy one time, he stood there for at least 15 minutes. And I said, what are you waiting for? Said, well, the nurse needs to sign me out kind of thing. I said, geez, I could have done that. So I, I also thought, honestly, uh, that it, it would be the most effective way to, to discharge a person because th this is the last chance to get, you're going to get that, get it right. So this may be uh, the, oh, do you have any uh, final uh, questions or of anything like that and they said oh by the way did i tell you that i had a splitting headache yesterday you know when were you going to tell me that you know it's like so the idea there is is to see if you can get a, a little bit more information make sure they feel okay better better than they came in that their vital signs have been checked and are and that you can explain the abnormalities you don't have to wait so a kid who has 103 temperature is as a 98.6 to discharge him. That's ridiculous. Although some places do that. Uh, but you just need to know why, why they're having it. I feel comfortable. And with the medicine that we're going to give it, give the child, it's, it's going to come down. But we don't have to wait for it to come down. It's not like, well, if it comes down, it's a, it's a, a viral illness. And if it doesn't come down, it's a bacterial illness. N none of that matters, actually. So, yeah, I think you take take the vitals. You may find the person's incidentally got high, uh, high blood pressure. It's like they're there for a sprained ankle, but you know, we take the vital signs. And so, and so it, it's a test. And like, if, 
if, if the test is abnormal, then you have to respond to it. Blood pressure is 155 over uh, uh, 92. That's abnormal. You're obligated. You're obligated to respond to this abnormal test. So you just basically say, listen, while you're here, we checked your blood pressure a few times and it was always a little bit up. I'm going to advise that uh, you tell your family doctor about that. And I will, I'm going to put it down here on your aftercare instruction that your blood pressure was a little bit elevated. Uh, maybe when you go back and get a recheck, it'll be fine. That kind of stuff. So you'd reassure them. Don't, they don't necessarily have high blood pressure kind of thing as a disorder. And I think that if they have any questions, I think you want to be the one to consistently give the answers. Like somebody says, uh, you just stapled their head up and you say, well, when can I wash my hair? Well, you know, I've heard people say, well, keep your head clean and dry and we'll, until we take the staples out. I mean, I'm not going to wash my hair for seven days. You know, it's, it's like that's the worst way to get an infection more than anything else. I feel you like, know, you know, plus you have no friends. You, can you imagine <laughs> this, this this concrete ball of hair up there now? No, of course not. You go home. You can wash it tomorrow. Some, as, as long as it's, it's sealed pretty well, it's not going to get infected. It, it, it's really hard to get scalp wounds infected. You've got to put warm steaming manure right in there and sew it over <laughs> quickly. And maybe then you'll get a scalp infection, but I've, they, they don't occur. So, yeah, I think it's important that the doc or you, the, whoever took care of them, the primary care person who took care of them, sign, sign them out. And if, if you're not allowed to do that, in the, you know, if the nurses have to do that process, well, it's just redundant work, frankly. And um, I think you're in a better position to answer questions than they are. They didn't they're going to give the answers that they like to give and the answers that, you know, some other doctors give. Well, I like to give the answers that I thought I would give because I'm trying to get, get to get responses that are as evidence-based as possible. Yeah. And it's nice too. but sometimes you can even do that in the room with the nurse and, you know, that way the nurse, you, the patient are all on the same page when the, when the patient leaves, there's no confusion on anyone's part as far as what was discussed on the way at the door. Uh, I have a real big heart for the incidental finding on radiology. You know, we're, we're going to miss some of these um, kind of like probably, hopefully, benign incidental findings in terms of printing out the, the imaging and giving it to the patient and, and, and stuff like that. But you know, both of my parents' cancers were diagnosed on incidental findings. You know, my mom went in for appendicitis. She happened to have this uh, apple core lesion they also saw on her, her colon, and she ended up having colon cancer. My dad went in for some, some belly pain. They CT the abdomen, but as you do, you catch a little bit of the, the um, thorax on that, and that led to the discovery of mesothelioma. And so wow. I'm very thankful to the incidental findings and that the clinicians on duty that day took the time to print those out, to share those with me, with, with my parents. Uh, and, and I think it's important too, like you're kind of on the hook for, for these things, uh, mm -hmm. like she said. And um, so what I have taken to do is th there is a diagnosis called abnormal blank, whether it's CT, ultrasound, x-ray, I will diagnose them with that. I will give them a copy. I will write in my discharge paperwork that they get and in my MDM saying, we talked about this abnormal finding, please follow up with uh, so-and-so. And that way, uh, you know, all the, the I's are dotted there. And there's no question that you had this discussion with the patient. This is prior to the uh, um, electronic medical record where the family physicians would have uh, access to it. But I would send 
everybody home with an envelope that had your EKG in it, your uh, your um, report of your X-ray, your your CBC, your electrolytes, all that would go into a envelope, sealed. Say, hand this to your fam uh, family doctor when you get to see him. This way, we we would basically have all of that work just handed to them rather than I got to look at my computer. Da, 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 da. So uh, that's, that was done in the, before now it, now the physician should be able to pull it up, assuming that doctors like in network and has access to the ER record as well, um, which may or may not be the case. Well, thankfully a lot of these hospitals have portals now to where, uh, you know, the patient can pull up their, their record from when they were in my ER, they can show the physician, uh, you know, from our, our medical records. So it's, but it's important to know that if your hospital has a portal, the notification for the patient that there is a portal is buried on page seven of the discharge paperwork. They don't know <laughs> until you tell them there's a portal. This is how you get to it. So I like the front of that on the first page of the discharge instructions. Go to the portal. Well, you know, the uh, 21st Century Cures Act now allows patients ready access to their medical record. And so it should teach that that should teach us that we should maybe be a little bit more careful with how we document as an example. <laughs> you know, we say patient complains of. Oh, yeah. And and they read the record. I, I'm not a complainer. I'm not a complainer. You, you know, that's just our lingo. So uh, if the, we said the patient presents with, then uh, it, it, it makes it sound much more uh, acceptable kind of thing. We don't say the patient's a sick. We don't say the patient's a sickler. It's the patient with mm -hmm. sickle cell disease. Yeah, of course. So that we, you know, take the dehumanization out of the process as much as as much as we can. We don't say morbidly obese anymore. You have to say something that is, uh, you know, uh, a, a BMI three times normal. You know, they don't know who that is. You know, maybe that's pretty good. Congratulations, three times normal. Um, so because of that, you don't want people reading your record. And also, you don't want them reading the record and find out that you have documented things that you did not do. Uh, he never asked me about whether I smoked or not, or, you know, those kinds of things, because now we have this idea that we're going to do eight of these and 15 of those and four of those. And that, that if we do that, we will we'll get uh, level five even. Uh, and so it's kind of like the big lie, all other uh, side, uh, systems checked and negative that, you know, that's a lie. You didn't check all the other systems. They're not negative. Uh, so I think that, we have to be careful. We have to be truthful. There was a study done at UCLA with nine residents doing uh, physical exams, and they all basically put down more history than they did uh, in terms of checking boxes and more physical than they did, every one of them. So uh, it's easy trap to fall into, but now people are going to be looking over your shoulder, so you've got to be careful. Well, speaking of that uh, interplay between us and the patient here, Martha's next segment is going to be talking about kind of like a, a teach back, you know, making sure that when the patient walks out that uh, everyone's clear on what has happened during that visit and, and how to know that the patient is clear on that before they leave. So let's cut to that. And then, of course, do the patients have any questions? 
Answer their questions. Don't just breeze by the door and say, hey, everything look fine, got any questions, okay, bye, right? We need to make sure we go in and talk to them. And the way that we talk to them is really important. We don't talk at them, we ask them to talk back to us. And that is the Ask Me Three approach by the National Patient Safety Foundation. They essentially say, please ask your patients the following three questions. If you do and they can answer them correctly, they more likely will do better upon discharge. So you have them say, what was my main problem? Well, um, I was here today because um, I had an abscess. Okay, um, then have them say, what do I need to do? Well, I need to come back in two days, right, you said, and have the packing um, removed. And, and I say, yep, that's right. And then um, ask them how they're gonna manage it at home and if they run into any problems. Well, if I have any problems with my abscess, I'm, uh, I, and then they might say, I'm not really sure. You say, I want you to come back right away, especially if you have a fever, and that's when you can interject. It's a conversation. And then lastly, you want them to tell you why it's important. Why would they even care to do these things? They need to communicate with you why they think it's important and why you think it's important. 40% of patients are unable to describe the reason for their hospitalization. Oh, I went to the hospital. I don't know what my problem was. They said there was nothing wrong with me, right? But we all know that we do more for patients than that, right? At least I hope we do. More than half of patients can't even recall the discharge instructions or their follow-up appointment. That's our fault, right? So in some cases, yeah, you can't teach patients. You might tell them again and again and again. And so I understand that it's difficult, but in the end, it's our job, it's our responsibility to help these patients navigate. Of course, there's gonna be a patient that, that you know what, you just, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough day for them, but we do the best that we can. So work on these teach back techniques, they're very useful. And then also the Society of Hospital Medicine has a checklist, you can check that out as well. What should be on the paperwork? What's important? Well, a lot of things. We gotta put the patient's name, we gotta put your name or the physician's name. We need to put the purpose of the discharge instruction. Well, they were here for such and such and they got a diagnosis of bleh, right? So potential complications need to be listed as well as medications and side effects. Now. I don't particularly love the medication printouts that come with our paperwork and every institution is gonna be different, but I'm gonna show you some smart phrases that you can literally directly copy and use if you like. I've had them all reviewed by JDs, MDJDs, to make sure that they were A-okay. You also want patients to have a follow-up plan, which I'll show you, and then documentation that the, they receive the information. And people are like, well, hey, what if they don't take the paperwork? What if they throw the paperwork in my face and say, screw you, you didn't help me at all, right? Well, hopefully that's not the situation, but once in a while it happens. Well, you do your best to document that you went over the information with the patient, the patient refused to take the paperwork with them. You can also attempt to mail the paperwork to the patient. I worked in an institution that emailed the paperwork to the patient, they didn't even have paperwork at all. If they didn't have an email, then certainly we printed it off for them. The other thing I like to tell people is I give every patient my email. When I started telling people that at prior courses, they were like, oh my God, why would you do that? Well, you know what? I give my pa uh, patients, hundreds of patients my email, maybe for every 100 patients, one writes me. Maybe once in a while I get a really nice letter that says, hey, you know, this incidental finding ended up being nothing, but thanks for, you know, helping me get this appointment or whatever. It's so gratifying to know how some of your patients do. And also, if you can fix something very easily in just one to two sentences in an email, I'm not talking about like the patient writes you and says, I have chest pain, what do I do? They're like, hey, you said you were gonna write me for seven days of Keflex, but the pharmacy says they only have five. 
Now, what if that patient just decided to come back to the ER and, and go through all of that? To me, if I can take care of something that easily, I do it. Now, of course, everyone's schedule is different. You shouldn't have to be on 24-7. This is just something I do, and my patients really enjoy it. Rick, for you in doing things like teach back, I mean, I, I don't know about you. Uh, I, I frankly don't have the time to do such a regimented teach back for every single patient. Are there any patient presentations in particular that you think a teach back is appropriate to do on or even necessary to do on? Uh, I, I've always struggled with that. I thought it was, you know, it, when it was explained, well, you tell them and then you get them to tell you what the, you told them back. I thought that was kind of like a little bit um, demeaning to, or embarrassing uh, right now. You, you tell me what you, uh, you tell me what I just told you. So I, I think that um, I, I wasn't a big teach back fan, although I, I, I know everybody says, says that. But I think if you can do it once and if they allow them any questions, you know, much, much of the time is straightforward. Plus, we had on our discharge instructions, if you have any new or worsening symptoms, come back to the emergency department immediately. New or worsening. There are three things that can happen to a, a symptom. They can be, have new, now I'm vomiting, or now I have fever, and I didn't have that before. Uh, or worse, now the pain's killing me. Or it's lasting too long. Like my sprained ankle is lasting three weeks now. Uh, that's too long. So, so, but that's really much more difficult to deal with. But newer worsening, new worsening, come back immediately. Uh, basically, I don't want to list all this litany of all these kinds of things and teach them all about head injuries and you know those kinds of things. I don't want to do that. I wanted to say, your headache's worse. Come back. Certain of them come back. It's like I don't really care what's what is uh, the new or worsening. I just want them to come back. I don't, I don't feel comfortable necessarily sending them to their family doctor because what if the family doctor they call the family doctor and they can't get an appointment for you know two weeks because they didn't explain they were in the emergency department that there's some urgency about this. So I want them to come back. They're they're my case. They're my patient. I want right. to see them if things are not going well and. Uh, I think that the the idea of newer newer worsening allows you to kind of if you put you can put other things down like more specifically this or that, but this idea of going out with this this you know quarter inch thick thing of a paper is just like ridiculous kind of thing. Uh, they're yeah, not going to read it. Yeah, I think Martha is like kind of more talking about the, the highlights here, like the, the kind of what you said, like. You know, what am I going to do if it's newer worsening? And the patient goes, well, I come back. Yes, exactly. That's what you do is you, you come back. So I think that's kind of where she's at. I've used teach back for um, some of our, we call them familiar faces in, in our ED, the ones that keep on coming back for the same complaint. It's like, let's really make sure that it's clear what you do next time. Um, or sometimes where there's even been kind of uh, AMA type situations where it's just not clear whether the patient understands the gravity of, of what's going on with them. It's like, oh, you've, you've got this crushing substernal chest pain that started as after you were, you know, mowing the lawn, but you really want to go home after, you know, you have this funny EKG pattern. I, I want to hear from you. Like, what are you understanding is going on here with you? What is your, what is your concept of what's going on? Why do you think we're asking you to stay longer? Just, just so I can kind of 
gauge the patient's perception. And, and I feel like that's, you can tell me maybe, maybe not, um, maybe somewhat protective if the patient goes, look, I understand you're telling me I probably am having a heart attack right now. And I understand it could kill me, but I have to go home for X, Y, Z. And, and that's something I can write down and say, look, the patient clearly has capacity to, to understand and, and, you know, make medical decisions and he's choosing to leave. And, and I'll write something as, and I'll, I'll verbalize it to them. And I'll write it down saying, look, we part as friends. This is not uh, the end of the right. relationship. If you go to the parking lot and you say, oh my gosh, I've made a horrible mistake. You just come right back in. We won't charge you for a second visit. We'll just get you right back in. Um, you know, uh, so we love to have you back anytime. I, I, as much as I might be feeling some kind of way Agreed. during those Agreed. contentious talks, I, I can't uh, show it. I can't demonstrate that to the patient. Yeah, you can't uh, make it... Um you can't shame them in coming back, coming back. They basically have to be welcomed back. I'm glad you came back. And the other thing is some people say, well, well, I, okay. So I may have had a heart attack. Well, that, that's okay. But you know, but did you know you could die? Die. I just thought it was a heart attack, you know? So I, I think that you have to basically say, you know, you may be having a heart attack. And frankly, one of the consequences is you may die. You know, everybody understands die. I got it. Die. Um, and hopefully somebody's in the room with the person so that you're talking in a three way or four way conversation so that there's uh, uh, everybody is understanding what's going on. You know, nor oftentimes when that happens, the spouse will say, listen, you're not coming home if they're thinking you're having a heart attack. I don't care what you say. You're you're staying, Charlie. Yeah, I like that. I, I like getting family involved when it's appropriate, especially if they're in the room or if it's like, hey, you're going to who, who's at home that can watch out for you? Your your daughter lives with you. Hey, that's cool. Well, look, can we talk to you real quick just so it's clear that, that, that they know what to do when if you go home and things get worse? I love to talk to them and see what they have to say. Um, make sure they're aware as well. And then you can include that in your uh, documentation of the situation. Thank Technically, you have to ask the patient if it's okay to oh, bring, you, bring your daughter in because, you know, we're hyper um, vigilant now about protecting everybody's privacy when, and when in the past, family would just kind of wander in or out kind of thing. And, you know, it just, you just kind of assume that their family would want to know what's going on. But anyway, now uh, it's a little different. But I think aftercare instructions are really important. And because if they're really important, that's why. I want to take, you know, three minutes and do it. Uh, I want to do it. And, you know, if there's paper to be handed out, I'll hand, I'll hand it out. But yeah. I, I, I know that that's probably not likely to occur in most emergency departments, but they have this process, which is tedious of getting it out of the department. Uh, you have to, um, it, it's like uh, we should work, work more at getting efficient systems to get people in and out. And yeah. we, we don't, we're not particularly good at that, honestly. Uh, everybody knows when you come to the ER, prepare to wait, bring a lunch. <laughs> right. Even if the, the patient encounter is done. All right. Well, uh, registration is going to come talk to you and you'll probably be out of here about uh, 20 minutes from now, even though the, the reason you came for is, is already concluded. Right. Right. 
How about uh, email or other contact info to patients? I know this one, it really could have bit this patient in the butt, and I'm glad that I was just uh, available. I, I put a patient recently on Paxlovid, and as we know, for COVID-19, there's really some strict guidelines here. The patient's got to have a certain patient factors going on. They can't have kidney failure, liver failure. Medications can be contraindicated relatively absolutely. And there's a, there's a time crunch. They've got to take the patient, the medication within five uh, days of onset of symptoms. Well, I, I sent this patient out with Paxlovid after doing a very thorough med rec on them. And uh, the urgent care I was in is shutting down for the day. And um as we're shutting down, the front desk lady says, hey, uh, CVS just called, uh, but I wanted to go to voicemail. And I was like, uh, I better get this. And so sure enough, it was CVS saying, hey, we're not prescribing Paxlovid to this patient um, until you do X, Y, Z with them. And, and I had already done that with the patient and, and the pharmacy was going to get in the way of me rightfully prescribing this patient. So thankfully, uh, I was able to call CVS and say, look, we already did the med rec. We already got, you know, cleared kidney, uh, liver function here. Please release this medication. The patient's there at the pharmacy wanting to start their treatments. And so hmm. um, I think that there are certain cases in which, yes, some sort of email or other content info is really important for these time-sensitive things. Although you have to be careful about leaving uh, messages on their answering machine. If they oh, yes. Yeah. If they have such a thing, you know. Yeah, there's um, I, I always able able to talk to the patient directly. Thankfully, you know, talk to CVS directly, the pharmacist, then talk to the patient. I, I've also like um, I've written in the discharge paperwork that I've given to the patient. I've said, hey, if um, you need to go to the pharmacy or if you need to do uh, contact me, I will um, call. If I don't get you, I'm gonna leave a voicemail saying, hey, call or hey, go to the pharmacy. And we talked about that, and you said that was okay. And, and I think there's a good medical legal argument to be had to where the patient signed for receipt of these papers and it said on there that I was going to make this phone call. You can document in the MDM as well saying you had this discussion. I, I think that's a way to kind of, um, if you want to say, get around uh, privacy issues or just kind of account for them, whatever phrasing you want to use there. Yeah, I think you can call the patient, but, but you, you know, just can't leave a message that the uh, gonorrhea test is positive. Right. You know, that's, that's, yeah. that's all. You got that herpes, Mrs. Johnson. Yeah. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, okay, well, yeah. that was great for Martha. And I think, uh, again, it kind of hammers home the point. And there's more she has to that talk as well about how important it is to end a visit properly, including with your documentation, discharge instructions here. We're going to flip it to one of my talks now about upper abdominal disorders, and we're going to listen about um, how important it is to, um, you know, make sure that what you are evaluating for is what's actually going on and, and, and the dangers of problems in the upper GI system. Let's talk upper abdominal disorders. This one's a banger right out of the gate because so many things can go wrong in the abdomen. Now, when you talk about upper abdominal disorders, it's very important to not confuse it with things that present with upper abdominal pain. Because look superiorly and inferiorly from the upper abdomen, and what do you have? You have the heart, you have the lungs, you have the lower abdomen where that dang appendix sits, and the bladder sits, right? So please, 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 if I, if I can impress three things upon you, 
during my talk today. The first one is this, keep a broad differential diagnosis when someone comes in saying, I have upper abdominal pain. I will never forget this appendicitis I took care of, this lady with appendicitis, I didn't take care of her appendix, I took care of her. Um, you know, she comes in saying, I'm having six hours of upper, like, epigastric abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting. Now, if you work in, like, a provider and triage model, how many of those patients have you seen and discharged out of provider and triage? Here's some Bentol, here's some Zofran, here's your discharge instructions for your six hours of nausea and vomiting in this young, healthy lady after a negative pregnancy test, right? I was in fast track. This came to fast track for me. I gave her some medicines. She was pretty benign as far as her story goes, pushing throughout the abdomen. Huh, a little right lower quadrant tenderness. Interesting, but predominantly upper epigastric tenderness here. She's not feeling better after a half an hour of Bentol and Zofran and some time. And so, second point I want to impress upon you for upper abdominal disorders here is doing serial exams. You think it's something, do something about it, and then recheck them after the meds have kicked in and see where they're going. So I do a serial exam, and she goes, yeah, I got a little better, and then I started feeling worse again. And this was only like 45 minutes after the Bentol had gone in, and I'm like, all right, something's wrong. I don't want you to go home, because I think something else is going on here. I think you might have appendicitis. She goes, no, I think I want to go home. I said, okay. Here's point number three. You have to give clear, timed follow-up instructions that are appropriate for the condition. So I told her, I said, I need you to come back when you're worse. And not in, th not in whenever, not in three days. If you are not better or feeling worse within 8 to 12 hours for this person with new abdominal pain, if you're not feeling better, or if you're feeling worse, eight to 12 hours, you need to come back to my ER. She rolls back in six hours after she leaves AMA, tachycardic, febrile, with a white count of seven, so you can't just draw labs and go, oh, the white count's fine, 10% of appendicitis patients have a normal white count, and she gets her appendicitis taken out. I'll never forget that, and that was upper abdominal pain, okay? So don't confuse upper abdominal pain with upper abdominal disorders, which we're going to talk about today. Okay, so the classic abdominal pain conundrum is the problem anatomically where the patient's pain is. I've got another story right here in my text messages that I got recently from a colleague of mine. I'll just go ahead and read it, de-identified. Mike, a patient came back in this evening specifically asking for you. Uh, the front desk lady knows the name. I talked to him briefly. You wanted to come in and thank you for probably saving his life. You sent him to blank last week with right upper quadrant pain, but mentioned this could be his gallbladder, but could also be a pulmonary embolism. Blank did not work him up for PE and said he maybe had pneumonia on CT on lower lungs when they were looking at abdomen. He persisted with his primary care who ordered a non-contrast CT, but went at the imaging center. He asked if he could please get a CT angiogram instead because you had mentioned a PE. He is now diagnosed with his PE and on Zarelto. He is very thankful to you and wanted to let you know in person. So um, Rick, I'm sure you have dozens more stories where you know, this, you know some other complaint masqueraded as upper abdominal pain. Yeah, that's one of the harder ones, actually, because we know down in the lower part of the abdomen, we can increase our likelihood of having something surgical. But in the upper abdomen, um, you you do, you, you uh, 
one of the things that we still have on the top of the um, um, list for cases where we're getting uh, sued is right after a C, a strokes is is still myocardial infarctions. And we're, despite the fact that we have all of these good pathways, we, we still you know, make mistakes when we think the problem is abdominal when it really isn't. So I think generous, uh, generously getting uh, a EKGs is generally uh, a good idea. I think that you have to be careful. You have to feel, you know, what, what are, what's up there? Uh, uh, is the liver up there? Is the spleen up there? Have you act actively tried to feel for those organs to see whether they're uh, enlarged and um, Hopefully you can feel in the right upper, uh, on the side there and feel, you know, maybe a gallbladder acting up or, or, to, or, or the like. But we do know that people give all of these things like the xylocaine. Um, uh, what do they put in with? Oh, the yeah. The, the GI cocktails, right? Like yeah, the, the lidocaine and the, you know, well, Donatol and yes, yes, Maalox and whatever. Yeah. And, and they somehow think that, well, that, well, that'll help them distinguish. And, it, you know, the literature says it really doesn't. And it also basically says putting in the lidocaine really is got not really helpful. Just giving the antacid will, will do the job if that's, if that's going to respond there. But it's, it's tough because I think it's the, probably the toughest spot of, uh, to uh, ascertain what's going on in the abdomen is upper abdominal pain, especially central where it's kind of like right right in the in the middle there it's not really around any of the solid organs that you have to deal with and it's kind of like well what is that is that some gastritis is that is that um has person had this before it's like you just don't know and um more likely than not a ct is not going to be all that helpful because you know in the center is basically these hollow organs and hollow organs don't you know, we don't we don't get that much information from how hollow organs on, on a CT. We're really into solid organs there. Um, so I think it's hard. Uh, I think the, the idea of getting the usual test is probably reasonable give, within the constraints of the history and physical exam. Uh, you don't want to miss pancreatitis. Um, it's it's a particularly nasty disease. And um I remember a case where the guy was in his twenties and had pancreatitis and it was like, why God only knows, but uh, right. he didn't have any of the risk factors and, wow. and, and, and pancreatitis is just kind of like you get those enzymes uh, from the pancreas into your bloodstream. It looks like you started dissolving your lungs and this next thing, you know, you've got a really bad, serious life-threatening problem. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about um, esophageal foreign body. That's kind of the next place I go in this talk here. All right. Esophageal foreign bodies. Patients have weird complaints sometimes like bugs crawling out of their skin or their heart hurting. And you kind of take it with a grain of salt. But if their story is, I was eating something, I swallowed, felt something scraping on the way down, and now I feel pain right here then that's one of those things you can kind of take them at their word for. They are very good. Patients are at localizing damage to the esophagus. You can see some danger areas here as far as places you don't want there to be perforations of the esophagus because of what's next door to the esophagus. So resist the urge 
of just kind of blindly shoving a nasogastric tube down into what could be a damaged esophagus, what else are you going to ding with that nasogastric tube? You really want to take a good look inside the mouth when someone, especially is saying, I have this foreign body sensation up there, especially if the person, look at the middle picture here, is, I wear dentures and I had them in half an hour ago and now I don't know where they are, you know, like, well, there I, I found them, you know. So you can often pluck out things from the upper uh, esophagus here, from the oropharynx. What you have to be careful with, though, is this, you have to be ahead of the aircraft, this is an aviation term where you have to anticipate the next thing that's going to happen. So ideally, the next thing is you pull the dentures out of their mouth and they thank you and you discharge them. The horrible thing is they shift or you bump the dentures down and now instead of having a, a pharyngeal foreign body, they have an airway foreign body. Okay? So be aware of these procedures and retrieval things are not necessarily benign. Be ready. Be ahead of the patient on this one. You don't always have to image the patient if the sensation they're having is just mild discomfort. If there's zero respiratory anything, they're not coughing, they're not having a shortness of breath, they're not just in that kind of distress, they're in some mild pain, I think there is a good risks-benefits discussion that can be had if they can swallow well or just in some minor discomfort to having them follow up with the GI as an outpatient and clear follow-up instructions for a scope. And that's what's really needed usually is some sort of a scope. I love chicken salad. This person really likes chicken salad, right? They're saving some for later. This is an impaction, okay? So this person often doesn't just come in saying, it kind of hurts right here. No, they are holding an emesis bag, spitting, heaving in the emesis bag. We've seen these patients some of us have. They look super uncomfortable, and they cannot go home. Often these folks have a history of this. And they know that when they eat certain foods, meat is a common offender. They can get things a little bit hung up, and they have their little maneuvers that they can kind of twist and turn their neck, and, and often that clears it for them. But often they're coming to you because all those things didn't work. Endoscopic retrieval is usually the way to go. Um, sometimes CT can be done. But honestly, if they're having an impaction, what's the point of shooting them full of rads when you know if you're not clearing that impaction that someone's going to have to go in with a camera anyways and get that out? So can't tolerate PO. GI's got to see them that day. Um, if you're able to clear the impaction, then they need to see GI in the short order here. Because why? Because some studies suggest over half of these patients, over half, have some sort of anatomic abnormality here, a web or a ring, or God forbid, a neoplasm that is causing the food to be impacted and hung up. So don't let them think that, hey, it's, we cleared it and you're good to go living your life, never seeing a PCP or a GI ever again. No, you still need to go see a GI doctor, even though we cleared it. Okay, Rick, so uh, you saw on the slide there, uh, red text underlined, early GI consult is advised, except in all my experience with taking care of people with foreign body uh, esophageal impactions, early GI consult is the last thing that we get. We, we, we consult GI and we're often told, well, uh, try this medication and then uh, try that medication and then uh, try them again and wait another hour. And if that doesn't work, yeah, I'll be right in. So it's, it's really hard to get GI consult in quickly. I'm going to pin you down here. What if you could pick 
one medication that actually works to relieve esophageal foreign body impactions. And it was safe to try to get them to, to pass that into the stomach. What is the one medication you would pick? Uh, that's a hard question because I don't think any of them work. If any of them work, <laughs> right. we wouldn't need any GI consult uh, uh, because uh, it would just go down that, you know, I think all of these have theoretical advantages. And this is an example of where the, the theory does not necessarily re result in the practice occurring, like uh, giving glucagon and, you know, lo loosening up these uh, constricted uh, esophageal muscles. It's like, you know, it's kind of, I've given glucagon and I don't think it works consistently by any means. And, you know, you, sometimes it makes people vomit and, you know, maybe that's okay. You're going to vomit, you're going to throw, you know, shoot this thing out. But if it's really obstructed and you're vomiting against it, you're generating a lot of pr pressure in the esophagus below it. Uh, so I, I'm, that's, that's a problem. This is one of those situations where the diagnosis is so easy to come in with the spitball. <laughs> they cannot yeah. swallow their spit. Uh, and so you don't need to spend a lot of time do documenting where it is or anything like that. They, they said they were eating dinner. They were eating piece of chicken. They were eating this or that. Um, so I, uh, you're right. The GI doctors may want you to do something and, and, uh, hopefully it'll, it'll go down. And, and I think most of the time, it, you know, if you give it enough time and if you sedate the person, uh, with, you know, maybe they'll need some kind of opiates to, you know, uh, to make them feel a little bit better and, and uh, decrease the spasms of this or that. You know, I think many times things go down and just by themselves. And so we attribute, oh, that's that what's made it go down. When right. it's like it was going to go down anyway, kind of thing. So it's really difficult to pick one medicine. Uh, I guess. I guess the one thing that I would do is basically uh, make a phone call. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, none, I think I allowed, none of the above is the am best. Am I choice. allowed a phone call? One phone call. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, you know what? I, I think it's important to recognize you mentioned this exactly. Like the, there's a non-zero chance the glucagon induces vomiting in this patient. You know what? And what if the patient has a prior history of heavy alcohol use? Might they have some esophageal varices underneath that foreign body? Might they, they just be a, an older? brittle patient where you don't want them vomiting anymore. Um, you know, so I think there are certain times in which you may have to gently professionally push back a little bit against GI. Um, if they're suggesting you try all these different things, you know, other medicines I've been asked to give are benzodiazepines, which I guess are fine, but there's you know contraindications to give benzodiazepines. You could give uh, some sort of, um, you know, antispasmodic like uh, dicyclic, not dicyclic, I mean, uh, metoclopramide, but those are not benign medications all the time. I am starting to see where GI specialists are saying give sublingual nitro, whether it's just like under the tongue or dissolved in a cup of water and you drink that, a uh, smooth muscle relaxant. I suppose you could do that, but none of these things are without their harms. And so I think you really have to be careful. I agree, there's not great evidence behind every single one of these things and potential harm is behind them too. Yeah, I think that uh, it's, plus a lot of these things make the patient, they're, they're really uncomfortable. The fact that they can't swallow their spit and, and, and they have this, this feeling in their, of this ball in their chest and we're gonna just try to wait it out so that the GI doctor can finish dinner and then have come in kind of thing. I mean, I can understand a little bit of that, but 
um, giving this drug, try that drug, you know, you know, it's just, it just buys time for the GI guys. I think that, um, that they just need to come in to, um, and you don't, this is generally one of those things where the, the doctor's going to do what you're, there's, that's what the treatment is, is to remove it mechanically. And so they know that these medicines generally don't work, but, and, and you're right. I think that some of them will have some potentially negative effects. You know, people talk about drinking carbonated uh, liquids. Right. Right. You know, yeah. I, that's a good I, one. I don't, I don't, I don't get that. You know, it's kind of like, well, you drink carbonated, it expands the, well, it goes down as bubbles and this thing is down here and you're, uh, you're, you're going to regurgitate this into your trachea because you can't swallow this soda where it's, you know, it's like, it's just messy. Yeah, yeah it's I not a depth charge off of the submarine back in World War II. You know, it's just a, it's soda, right? It's not like that, you know, explosive and expansive, you know, so. Well, the other thing is, I think if you are going to do that, my my personal favorite is Dr. Pepper. Because it's it's a medical it's a medical. Center. Oh yeah, there you go. Right, exactly. You, go. <laughs> you went to school and everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you bring on the Dr. Pepper. <laughs> we can consult Dr. Pepper. We can. Yeah, go we for have that. one can of it in the refrigerator there for these emergencies. That's brilliant. One thing we've done too in in down that vein is we've gotten these uh, effervescent granules. The Easy Gas is one brand name. They're little pop rocks. They come in this little packet. Radiology has them. I've had folks kind of like shoot that with a small amount of water. That does fizz pretty quick. That that's a little more um, gas forming than I'd say uh, pepper. Uh, you know, a soda off the off the fridge shelf here. So that's something to consider as well. I've, I've had you know I feel like just as much success as I've had failure with that, and and that's just also just uncomfortable to have this foaming morass <laughs> come out of this patient's mouth when they're already very uncomfortable. That's just a it's a they're all these are all dice rolls with with poor odds like just like Vegas. Well, um, I think this was great that we got to go over some of these things here from our boot camp. Hopefully, listener, you got a feel for what it's like to be at boot camp. And we're going to continue that going on here to finish out the podcast. We'll do a great question and answer session where Martha and I were involved. And you can kind of hear how, how great it is to be able to ask questions directly from these emergency medicine subject matter experts about the topics they're presenting. Uh, but lots of great issues are often raised that aren't found in your textbook or uh, on your uh, social media group here. Uh, let's go on to the two view trivia question for this past month. It is a two part answer. We talked today about uh, that day about how contact lens wearers can be susceptible to more serious eye infections. And one of the eye infections we didn't talk specifically about was something called acanthamoeba, it's a parasite. And so our question was uh, the naming of acanthamoeba has a Greek origin. What's the Greek origin and translation of acanthamoeba? And in what year did the FDA recall a contact lens solution because of contamination with acanthamoeba? Rick, do you have an idea on this one? What, what, where the origin of acantha comes from in the Greek? No, no, <laughs> no, I really, I really don't. Acantha, uh, no. Yeah. I, um, I don't want to make myself seem too out of touch with the reality here so i'm just going to pass on that one i know your latin is a lot stronger than your it, Greek. it is <laughs> it is i i we i went to a catholic high school where they had two years of latin then i went to a catholic college 
and I had two more years of Latin, so I'm ready to say mass. You know? <laughs> the perfect, yeah. <laughs> well, too bad this wasn't a Latin translation. Well, yeah, from exactly. the Greek, acantha is spike, and that FDA recall of the contact lens solution was 2007. The, wister, uh, the winner, rather, is Misty Haltom from my... Um, Copious amounts of Googling. I feel like Misty Haltom is a nurse practitioner from Texas. So congratulations, Misty. We'll be in touch with your winnings shortly. Um, Rick, what should we give to the winner of this next two-part trivia question? It's great to have you on here. So you can just tell us what we're going to give this person. Well, I don't know uh, the magnitude of the gift that you're used to, but the only gifts that I can think of that really, really make sense is uh, giving them a course. Let's do it. Let's you get a course. free course. And, you know, we have a lot of options and courses here. We'll talk about that in a second here. But here is the two-part trivia question here. So, um, again, we just got back from Las Vegas. And the big hospital, the first hospital of that area is called University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. That was the first one. But it wasn't called that when it opened back in the day. The question is this. What was the first name of UMC? And when was this hospital opened? You're going to want to send in your reply as soon as possible, because we had some stiff competition for our last trivia question here. Send in your answer to twoviewcast at gmail.com. It is always the number two viewcast at gmail.com. Um, if you also want to um, get on our website where we talk about all of our uh, different talks and have kind of like our show notes here, that's at our website. It's at twoview, uh, sorry, twoview.fireside.fm. Again, the number twoview.fireside.fm. So um, next, let's just kind of quickly talk about the upcoming courses here. Um, the next one is going to be August 23rd to 25. That's our advanced emergency medicine boot camp. And they've got some pre-course EKG and imaging workshops on August 22nd. And I can't think of a better Christmas gift for you or a loved one than December 13th through 16th is the original emergency medicine boot camp, the, the holiday edition. That's going to be in Las Vegas again with pre course workshops on December 11th and 12th with pharmacology, ultrasound, and procedures. Um, Rick, you usually go to the Key West emergency medicine and acute care course. Can you yes, tell us about that course? That that course is a little bit different than the boot camps. Can you talk about the, what that course is about? Yeah, the emergency medicine acute care course was started in 1985 uh, uh, with our first course being in Maui. Since that time, we've done over 500. Uh, the focus is, what's the literature say about uh, various questions that are out there? Uh, and so it's of a literature-focused course that uh, basically we have no slides. It's basically there's a a text in front of us. We got the, the abstracts that we're going to talk about, and we're going to try to basically look at a bunch of questions in, in, in a variety of topics, looking at what do we do? What does the literature say? Is there any uh, con uh, consensus or maybe is there, is there not? Uh, where is the theory? Where is the practice? And, and we like to actually really blow up the, uh, the, the uh, cases where there's a physiologic this physiologically, this medicine or this treatment should work when in fact it's actually given and it doesn't work. So it's like, uh, that's always a, 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 an eye opener and basically causes you to stop and, and think twice about um, just, just the way things are working in, in the human body and how complex they are. But 
the literature is about our brothers and sisters taking the time to study a point carefully. And so the fact that we can take an abstract and match it up with two or three others that are in, in the same topic and see, do they all agree? Or is there a consensus or, or is there not? That's the nature of this course. It's, it's, um, it's not your typical, okay, let's talk about heart attack kind of thing. It's really about, uh, as an example, we talked about ketamine for suicide last, uh, this, uh, last year and went through all the papers that, that I could find on ketamine for suicide because I think uh, we have so little things that we can do for people who are suicidal. And yet uh, ketamine, uh, I know that it, it, we're using ketamine for everything, but I think this literature is surprisingly good that it's a reasonable thing to do to give uh, ketamine. And within hours, there, these people are often no longer suicidal. Uh, and, and so we're talking about new things, controversial things, uh, try to advance your practice or reaffirm what you're doing is, is the way to go. So if you prefer your palm trees to be of Floridian versus uh, Nevada extract here, you can come and check out the EM and AC course, emergency medicine and acute care course. That is going to be in Key West, the last iteration for the year, November 28th through December 2nd. These are ones are, are, are rarely in Vegas. If you're not a really a Vegas fan here, um, the, you guys pick, we, you know, pick great locations throughout um, the United States and even outside of the United States to have these courses. Um, keep an eye out. The locations for next year's course are going to be posted probably the next few months here and our website for that. Oh, go ahead. Do you have some actually, uh, we're actually we're trying to do it um, much quicker and we have about, we are only going to have about nine this coming year. We already have six of them locked down. So we're just waiting to get the contracts on the last three and we're going to put it up and let the world know about them as soon as possible. Uh, so that they can, if they want to go, they can make the plans that they need to get off the time that they need. Um, these courses, I think, I think that you will find them. Um, uh, I think that you'll find you'll come away saying that was really an, a, a unique educational experience. That the people who do it uh, are really smart, and and generally they're quite entertaining, engaging, and. and uh, we're only talking about maybe a hundred people so that you can, you can more back and forth can go on. So uh, you can give them a try. The, the other things we, we've we videoed all of them. So you can take them as a self-study uh, course. So if you're, if you're not into traveling right now, or there's too much COVID thing, which is always seems to be over our head, never leaving um, the self-study courses are out there and basically you don't have to travel you don't have to hotel you don't need to get off work etc cetera, etc cetera. so you may want to take a look and see what they're like yeah but and I all these uh, things are available at www.ccme.org we've got last year's boot camps already recorded we've got this year's 2022 emergency medicine and acute care course already recorded and out there and you can also find us on the little social media outlets too i'm sure we're going to post our newest locations for 2023 uh any you know day or week or month here well rick it was a real pleasure it was great for you to fill in of course our hearts with martha um and we love to have her back here uh next episode here but we thank you for filling in um not as good looking as she is uh but we appreciate the the energy and enthusiasm you brought to the the day here i enjoyed it and thanks for the opportunity uh uh i think it's really important that uh we, we get the word out as me, most as best we can 
regarding the ways to practice medicine that are most pro-patient, most uh, um, evidence-based, uh, most cost-effective, and that we narrow the variability between us so that we're each patient we, we get to is going to be given the best care that we possibly can, as, as if the same as if we were a member, treating them as a member of our family, which is always the, the, the measure of any question in the emergency department, it would the always answer is, well, what would I do with it if it was a member of my family? That that always answers the questions that you may be asking. And I've I've used that too to a patient where I can tell the the patient or the parent is kind of look at me askance as far as hey, do I really trust this guy? I said, look, I got I've got a I've got a wife at home or I've got four children at home, and what I'm telling you is the exact same thing I would tell my wife or my child if they were. It's in very the room powerful, here. very powerful. Yeah. It, it really humanizes what's going on. Mm -hmm. it, it brings it. We're not just a. a a suit or a white coat or a set of scrubs at that point. We are another um, another family member who cares about another patient and, and it's really humanizing for You're us. You're taking them into your confidence. You're treating them like special and yeah. everybody wants to be treated special. Because they are. Everyone is special that comes into the ER, but they're they're equally as special, right? Everyone, everyone is special. Right. I agree. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. You could subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes podcast, Google podcast, and Spotify. We're going to start reading some of the reviews that you guys put on Apple iTunes and Google podcast, Spotify, you just get to give like a five star. So, Hey, go ahead and give us a five star on Spotify. If you can't justify that, please write us at two viewcast at gmail.com and tell us what you want to hear from us on this. We're, you know, we, we're open to constructive criticism and we want to make this episode, uh, this podcast better and better. Every episode search on those podcasters, for a two view emergency, that's the number two view emergency, and it will come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get the same two view goodness that you got today. If you like YouTube and you want to see the video blog instead with clips, you can see me and Martha talking with the slides in the background. In addition to me and Rick bantering here, search for Center for Medical Education on YouTube and you can catch the video version. It often comes out a little bit earlier so you can get a jump on the trivia questions. Uh, don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we referred to. That is twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thank you again, friends and EM, for tuning in. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today at The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift. Hey, it's Mike again. I wanted to introduce the Q&A session. First thing, this is a great one. We have some great discussion, very applicable to the PA and nurse practitioner in emergency medicine. What do you do when you and your attending disagree? This is a tough one to be sure, and I love what our panel offers as suggestions. Plus some odds and ends about vomiting patients, using Ketorolac in patients with unknown renal function, and other good stuff. You recognize Martha's voice and my voice right out of the gate. Rick Bucata on this podcast also chimes in early on this Q&A. The first clear female voice you'll hear after that talking to me about the use of an alcohol pad as aromatherapy for nausea is Dr. Jess Mason, MD. Uh, right now, Dr. Jess Mason is a transplanted Texan like me. She runs the Medical Education Fellowship at John P. Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. She is also a leader at 
MRAP. She is the deputy editor of MRAP. She's the managing editor of the continuous court content section of MRAP and so many other things there. Shortly after that, the next male voice you hear talking about imaging with minor back trauma uh, is Dr. John Schufelt, MD. Now, Dr. John Schufelt is a real hyphenate. He is an MD, MD, JD, emergency medicine physician, um, also ran a large urgent care practice. Um, he is an author. He is a pilot. Um, he is just very well recognized in the space of emergency medicine, not just practice, but also entrepreneurship. Um, so really out in front in terms of running these emergency medicine practices, managing different clinicians in emergency medicine and urgent care. Lastly, if you've been listening to the podcast for a little bit, you recognize the voice of Dr. Diane Birnbaumer, MD. Um, she's replying to the question about liability of primary care clinicians when they're notified through an EMR about a patient's ED visit. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast, like I said, for a long time, Dr. Diane Birnbaumer, you'll recognize her. Um, she is an emeritus professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. She is a senior clinical educator for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Um, she is, of course, the co-director of the Emergency Medicine Boot Camps for the Center for Medical Education, and a well-known, well-recognized, well-awarded speaker in emergency medicine. So that's the kind of faculty you get here at the Center for Medical Education and the original Emergency Medicine Boot Camp. These are leaders in the field, acclaimed educators, and maybe most importantly, people who have been in your shoes practicing urgent care and emergency medicine in uncertain times. Um, they've succeeded. They've had setbacks. The opportunity you get by coming to our conferences is you get to meet these people and directly ask questions of them. They are eager to meet you and guide you through this amazing profession. We'll see you next month on The Two View, and as Rick Bucata might say, bye for now. So there are a lot of questions in here. <clears throat> A lot of questions from go for this it. morning. So let's go ahead and, and pull some of these out. Mike, will you just remind everybody about the alcohol prep pad technique? Yeah, I won't spend a lot of time on this one. You basically tear open the alcohol pad and you hand it to the patient. Okay, just Snip the smelling this. of the alcohol pad can kind of blunt the nausea and vomiting while the medicines take effect. Pretty cool. They don't lick it. They don't put it in anything. They smell it. All right, so be have clear you, about that. Have you found that to be really effective, though? Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. Like, I had somebody. I have not had good experience really? with it, and I feel like patients give me the eyebrow, like, here, just sniff this alcohol pad. I, <laughs> for me, it's. <laughs> if you look at the studies. <laughs> if you look at some of the studies, it you gotta does. Sell it, it. it is more effective when combined with another antiemetic. So. Yes, there's usually so something, is water. There's something else on board. So, no kidding. I had a patient, we admitted to the hospital. Two weeks after bariatric surgery, had a small bowel obstruction, needed to be operated on here. She was miserable. I gave her the alcohol pad, which she shut up here, and she's like, what? So, like, really, it is quite variable, but it's, it's worth a try, right? I'm not going to hurt them by having them huff on an alcohol pad. Did you want to have something? to get that out of the... Uh... Pixis. <laughs> yeah. Charge, any, any, drawer, Charge the any drawer in your ER, you're going to find an alcohol pad. I don't know. That's what they used to say about bacitracin, and now look where it's No gone. kidding. All right. 
Okay, this question. In the instance that a patient comes to the urgent care that does not have x-ray on site with back pain with mild trauma, such as a ground level fall, from a legal stance, should there always be an x-ray performed, even if there is no spinal tenderness as well as no other signs of direct injury? I think you did low back pain. I would say, I would say x-ray is not required if your exam is benign, even if you have it with direct trauma. Yes, I think not only is it not required, but it's very low utility. It's very unlikely to find a fracture if that's what you're worried about. If you're really worried, you should get the CT. I think I have not had a problem with explaining this to patients, mm -hmm. and very rarely does anyone just really demand an x-ray. I can't even think of a time that that's happened. I don't feel like it's required. Yeah. Okay. All right, Dr. S here. Mm. I am a family doctor whose institution and ER copies the family doctor on everything that happens in the hospital ER, often with not actually sending the reports. Is there liability to a provider who is copied on a report he has no that's involvement with? So that's a great question. We talked a little bit about the break of this. So the short answer is, yeah, I think you have some liability. The argument you'll, you'll have is you never establish a doctor-patient relationship. But from what I understand is some of these are your patients and they're coming out of the hospital and you're copied on things about which you had no involvement in in the hospital. The fact that they are your patient and now you know, yeah, you, have, you will have some liability. I think that's a very antiquated practice. Okay. I think it's happening more and more though with EHRs. People are just getting copied on oh everything. God, yeah. This next one, what's the best way to handle the texts and Facebook messages from friends and those you haven't seen since high school when they want <laughs> medical advice can this be held against you in court? I think um, there's a specific situation that must be tied to this one. Yeah, well, I, I responded to this with, I think, a pretty good one. You can copy and paste it if you want. I really, uh, I'm sorry I missed your message. I was at work and I didn't see this. Hope you figured it out. Please see your PCP or go to the ER if you're worse, though. And by the way, hell no, I'm not going to the reunion. I would answer, syphilis is the great mimicker. <laughs> Best of luck. I think it's important to look at your contract. My contract says I cannot treat patients outside of the ER where I work as a PA or an NP. So like, hey, I'm sorry, I get fired if I do this outside of my job. I wish I could help you. It's a hard thing, right? Is this the curbs the nurse in the hallway that says, can you look at my kid's ears? Your neighbor who says, oh, by the way, can you just take a peek at such and such? Yeah. I don't know, I just have a standard. I just don't take care of anybody that isn't when I'm in the emergency department. I, you may be a friend, you may be a family. It's not that I don't love you. In fact, it's because I love you that I'm not gonna do this. Because not only can you get sued, which you can, but you can make mistakes. You have cognitive errors when you treat someone you know. Um, you just don't see things that you would see clearly in somebody else. So there's a bunch of very good reasons not to do that. Do you think we're having cognitive errors when we, we treat each other? Should I stop treating you, you stop what? treating me? Well, actually, you know, it's, it, I understand the pure answer. But it's often very, very difficult because I think you're a jerk and don't, please I don't, don't care. make me. Don't. I made a mistake once trying to treat somebody I love and I will never do it again, ever. Oh. I don't care. Mm. Um, it's just not worth it to me or to them. It's just not. All right, I'm not responsible for that prescription I wrote you anymore, sorry. sorry. Well, you know, it's <laughs> one of those things where I, I, I really like everybody who's going to the ER in my family to call me first because I may be able to, you know, in some way uh, attenuate or facilitate uh, they're going or not going kind of thing because one of the, my relatives basically went to an urgent care for a sore throat. The next thing I knew she was on clindamycin. The next thing I knew she was in the hospital with uh, uh, C. diff and it was like, 
she was, you know, 35 years old, and it's like, come on, you, you should, you know, give me a but call. But you shouldn't have diagnosed or treated her over the phone. You should have said, don't take the Clinda. Well, I, I never knew till that she had this yeah. uh, an incredible diarrhea. And then she's in a spacesuit for five days in a hospital because she's highly contaminated. I think this is a tough question. I do too. And it, there isn't always an easy answer. So perhaps the, the nuance there is perhaps you'd be an advocate for someone who did yeah. seek in-person care and offer like, hey, I'll talk to you about what happened because sometimes there are just things that aren't explained at discharge or disposition or sometimes clinicians do things that maybe are not reasonable things to do. And so uh, being an advocate for someone after they did the right thing to be sought in person for care. I have no problem with that. I do that a fair amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just not the primary caregiver. Yeah, okay. All right, question again for Dr. S for the info session here. Are there any additional responsibilities for APPs uh, managing patients in the ED with a supervising attending as far as documentation. Example, APP tells attending about a CT finding where radiologist recommends an MRI. Doc says not necessarily, excuse me, not necessary to order in the ED. I think the only thing is to, to document it and say discuss with Dr. You know, discuss with Dr. Schufelt recommends doing this as an outpatient patient uh, patient concurs, patient agrees. Now, there may be some times when you know absolutely, you know, for the cavernous vein thrombosis, you want to get the MRI, MRV in the ED, and then it might be a discussion, and you might have to take it up, take it upstairs a notch where you call the radiologist back and say, let me put the attending on in the emergency department because he or she does not believe this needs to be done emergently, and I, and I think from what I read, it does. I think these are hard. I think for APPs, when you feel very strongly about something um, and the supervising physician says no, um, I think these are where, where your skills as a communicator come in on how to explain, first of all, listen, because they may know more than you do about it and they may be able to say, well, here's why, here's why, ask why. Here's why I don't think it's indicated right now or here's why I would do this instead. That's helpful because sometimes we all have something to learn. We can learn from anybody we're working with. Uh, but if you really have a difference of opinion and you feel very strongly that the patient will be harmed because of that decision, this taking it upstairs, it often ends up going, it's, it's so uncomfortable. Calling the radiologist isn't necessarily the answer. Letting two people talk to each other may help. Sometimes you, it's just really uncomfortable and you might even need to go to the medical director if you feel strongly enough. I mean, we all have foibles and we're not, not all of us is, you know, the best person ever in our jobs. And so it's, it, we're, and again, the whole point is the patient themselves in all of this. So. You know, I hear with some frequency from uh, PAs and MPs that the, um Doc working will not help them out or go to their cases or review their cases or they say they're, they're your cases or something. It's, it's hard to believe, but this, this comes up a lot. Does anybody have any issues with that happening with you? Hopefully or The doc won't help you out at all or, or they're getting weird about it? I hear about it. It's not my physicians, frankly, but it's other friends I know who work in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who are told sometimes, hey, that's, that's your pod. Mm -hmm. That's really too bad. Yeah. yeah. And they're sick patients, right? I mean, like, you know, we can handle the bread and butter stuff. This is a, a dicey patient, a high-risk patient, maybe needs admitted, maybe a consultation. Well, nice to have an attending's weight behind something and, right. and it's not given. And the patient's supposed to be the most important thing, right? We keep forgetting all of that in our weird interactions. Yeah. Okay. 
All right, this uh, is another one that Mike and I were actually arguing about over there on the side. And Ar arguing? We weren't arguing. Uh, we were being really nice to each other. Collegial discussion. Yeah, collegial. No. Oh, this is for UTI? Yeah. So is a single dose of IV or IM rocephin indicated for a patient you plan on discharging on oral cephalosporin? I was told no change in outcome. So, Mike, you go first on this. Oh, okay. No, it's not expressly indicated. This is one of those times where there's a lot of nuance involved. Is the patient going to walk out of your ER to the pharmacy and pick up their drugs? Then probably you don't have to give them parenteral antibiotics. Is it late at night and the pharmacies are closed? Does the person work the next day? Are there financial barriers or other barriers to picking up antibiotics in the pharmacy? Well, in that case, maybe you want to give them a 24-hour window to get those medications, to scrape together some money, to get off of work, whatever, and that's why you give the ceftriaxone. Um, you don't have to establish IV access if they don't have it already. I am ceftriaxone just as worthwhile for something like this over IV. And are you talking about pylo or cystitis? Well, um, mostly pylo, but cystitis, I think it's overkill for cystitis. It is. Um, so you could just give an oral cephalosporin in that case. And you can always give first oral dose of meds in the ER. Which I mentioned I kind of do, especially with the whole pharmacy shutting down. Um, but, but maybe even if it's a lower UTI and the patient's like, I can't go to the pharmacy 24 hours. Weird stuff happens, right? And so sometimes I have to be a little bit flexible with these things. But I agree, in a perfect world, I would not give parenteral um, ceftriaxone for a, a garden virus, a uh, cystitis. Or a sore throat, usually either, or the sniffles for, for 24 hours. Here's another good question. Turkey Sandwich Tycoon, great name by the way, <laughs> asks, <laughs> for kidney stones, would, should, I wait to give Toradol until um, I get my creatinine back, especially if the presentation is vague and I'm going to send them for a CT with contrast? I answered another thing, but I don't hear what you guys yeah. have to say. I answered as well, but let's it. see what you guys have to say as well. It depends, it depends. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. young, that's kind of what I said patient, too. Yeah. Um, right. Then they're sure. probably going to have normal renal function. I'm willing to take that risk if I did, have de decided already that I want to give them ketorolac or another NSAID, and I think that's acceptable. Um, so it all depends on your level of concern and comorbidities. Right. And and then, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And to parse that a little bit out, the CT with contrast, if you're worried about stones, oh, yeah. you won't be doing a CT with contrast anyway. Um, so that's, I'm going to just pull that out as a little separate thing. Yeah. For stones, you don't need contrast. Their thing was that it was, it was a vague, vague presentation. So you're just so like, not, eh, I guess I'll get it. Could contrast. be kidney stone, could be something else. But the other thing is morphine is a great drug to treat kidney stone, renal colic pain. So, I mean, I, I like it. I use it. And then you can always add the Toradol on after. If you're well, wh what if you work in an opiate-free emergency department? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk uh, about that later. That's later. Well, I won't go there. I won't go there. Actually, you see the medicine for your kidney yeah. stone. Yeah, and, and this Here's is a hug. One, one instance where I actually do sometimes err on the side of adding a little fentanyl first because it's such a miserable, so miserable to have a kidney stone, and they will be better with fentanyl within a minute, and then the morphine lasts the five hours and. So yeah, Diane, you talked about that before. You have a love of, of fentanyl for these acute pain issues and, for, uh, and for intranasal as well you can use, right? Yeah, so lots of ways. Lots of ways. Okay. Okay, uh, the esophageal, is it coming up here? It's not up there. Sorry about that. CT abdomen of the pan, can we go try this? Go ahead and let's do this one and I'll fix this. The, um, 
There's the Amtala question too. I'm yes. just defining okay. what is Amtala. Let's, let's define yeah. Amtala. Someone did ask about so, that. So Amtala is Emergency Medicine Treatment and Labor Act, started in 86, mainly from hospitals in Texas and probably Southern Arizona, getting people who are undocumented uh, coming over in labor and shooing them down the road to the community hospitals. These women were dying en route and having uh, delivering en route. That's kind of where it started. And then the follow-up question is, how does it apply to private emergency departments? If a private ED accepts Medicare patients, then they are governed under EMTALA. If, a, if an urgent care, if a hospital has an urgent care on premises, or if it's owned by a hospital, they too are governed under EMTALA. Meaning everybody gets an emergency screening exam before you can ask about their ability to pay, regardless of their ability to pay. And it's expensive if you don't do it for both you and your hospital. Yes, 50 to 200,000. Individually, you and them. Not covered by MedMail. So this other question to piggyback off that was, how does EMTALA apply to private ERs? Kaiser is members only, and community hospitals will discourage patients from Kaiser to be seen in their hospital. They still have to see the patient. If they take <laughs> Medicare money, they have to see the patient. They have to yeah. get an emergency screening exam. So. Just err on the side of just doing it. Right. It just, I mean, it's, plus it's, it's kind easy. of the right thing to do anyway, but err on the side of it. And if you're being pushed to not, push back. This is a big pushback. Your hospital knows this. Your CEO would want to know if you're being told not to screen, because the hospital's going to lose its Medicare contract and pay a fortune. Let's um, end with this last one. I want to throw in something really quick I'm with Antala, just because it was asked. If you have a patient who's a pediatric patient, right, there's all this concern about like, well, do we have consent to do anything here? you are still required to do a medical screening exam for a pediatric patient, even if you don't have consent from a parent. The consent is for treatment. You can hold off on non-life-saving treatment, but you should evaluate and do a medical screening exam regardless of what consent you may or may not have. Okay, got it. Uh, last one here. What's the best way to document refusal of informed consent without using AMA? That's mixing things. So like I would a just form. go through those nine, those kind of nine bullet points we talked about. Um, do they have capacity? Do they understand? What have you? I document all that, and then it's like the going to the auto mechanic analogy that I use. I document a patient has capacity. They understand the risks and benefits. They elect to do this. Um, it's all good. And I rarely, rarely, if ever, make patients sign out AMA. One, there most people's insurance won't pay for you if you sign out AMA. So you really punish the patient when you do that. Also, it just looks retrospectively that you're like this with them instead of like this with them, embracing them. Because everybody has the right to their own, decide their own care as long as they have capacity, and I just approach it that way. I thought that was a myth about uh, insurance declining to pay for visits if there was an AMA form. I actually have seen that recently. Wow. The, hey, you walked out, you didn't get treatment, why are we paying for it? Now, maybe wow. it's some insurance plans, maybe it's Arizona. Uh, it's probably not Medicare, probably not Medicaid, but I've seen some private insurers will say, no, they didn't say for treatment, you're paying. The other thing is that you ought to, if they are going to leave, do your best to, to give them some medication. If it's an infection, you give them, you don't say, okay, I'm washing my hands. You, you do your best. Yeah. So if they're having chest pain and you can give them a beta blocker and some nitrates, you know, if that's the best you can do, okay, we're going to do that kind of thing. So uh, you don't abandon them and you basically say, we're here 24-7, you change your mind, please come back. That's a great point. I've seen a lot of cases with AMA, the provider does, you're done, yeah, not talking okay. anymore, as opposed to saying, okay, I know you don't want to be admitted, I know you don't want this, but if, if, you, if you must go home, if you insist on going home, 
here's what we're going to do to help yeah. you. So and, and we're always here. Please come back. Exactly. We're always welcome. Yeah. You can also say, would you like to see one of my colleagues instead? And I've done that before and said, maybe this just isn't a good relationship. Maybe we're not communicating well. And I have no problem having them see someone else or get a second opinion or whatever they want. So to keep them there. Um, Diane, rapid fire, you like to do this, yes or no's? Can, <laughs> put me on the hot seat. Okay, go. Can you assume if someone has tolerated fluoroquinolones in the past that they're unlikely to experience black box symptoms without, uh, with future prescriptions? No. That's a no. No, I, you know, I, I have a little thing These about this. These are yes, this. no's. <laughs> <laughs> he can talk. Let him, I'm kidding. He's the boss. He can I'm kidding. All right. You, you shouldn't be prescribing anybody fluoroquinolones if you read or look at the most recent black box from May 16th. Um, there's always an alternative to the fluoroquinolones. Uh, use something else. Yeah, your urologists are going to ask for it. They, I guarantee they're going to Yeah, well, we have to give them a, uh, have them help them read the black box on the neuropsychiatric effects of fluoroquinolones. All right, just this last one. What about sublingual nitroglycerin in your facility if they don't have IV form? So I'll tell you the best situation you could ever end up in to look like a rock star is to have somebody go into pulmonary edema while you're on an airplane because you end up having to figure out what to do without your IV drip of anything and get on the overhead and say, anybody have any nitroglycerin here on that plane? Can anybody with nitroglycerin please bring it up to the galley with the flight attendants? That was very Cause, accurate. Because you can actually give sublingual nitro, it's high dose, it's actually pretty high doses. You can just give it one after another after another. Yeah, I was t telling them about the Germans who first discovered that giving a, a handful of nitro uh, sublingually treated pulmonary edema. But it's amazing. Dr. I have a friend who basically went on a four-hour flight, keeping the patient basically as stable as possible, just spraying, 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 because they couldn't land. They were over water. 